0: Now, if you would please, it's time for us to open our Bibles and turn to Acts, where we arrive in chapter 3. And these next five chapters of Acts record the glorious spread of the gospel in those first months following the arrival of the Holy Spirit and that astounding day we read about in chapter 2 when the first 3,000 baptized converts in Christ were launched. Chapter 3 is a unit of thought, so I'm going to target the entire chapter for today. We slowed down and took, I think, what, three sermons to get through Peter's first sermon. Today we're going to do his second sermon and the whole chapter surrounding it. This chapter includes a a glorious miracle and then the powerful sermon from Peter. This time, it doesn't tell us anything about how or how many people responded, but you're going to see as we keep working through the chapters ahead that there was an astounding, relentless growth in the number of new believers. I think you would also see if we didn't have the the man-made and often not really helpful chapter divisions that you could see that chapter 3 is what sets the stage for another very important event in what we call uh, chapter 4. So I'm going to bite off a whole chapter. Now the outline is very simple. It's not a balanced outline of equal amounts in each point, but it describes the chapter. We have the man, the miracle, and then the message. The man that is the focal point at the beginning is described in the first three verses which read like this. Now, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the ninth hour, the hour of prayer. And a man who had been lame from his mother's womb was being carried along whom they used to set down every day at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, in order to beg alms of those who were entering the temple. When he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple, he began asking to receive alms. We don't know exactly when this took place. The passage in our Bibles begins with the word now, which is the translation of a Greek conjunction that connotes a connection between what came before and what follows, but also a distinction. So this wasn't the same day as the events of Acts chapter 2, but it's connected. This is the next part of the story. And he says, now, it was at the ninth hour, the hour of prayer. That was about three in the afternoon, and that was the third of three regular daily times for prayer in the temple. Peter and John were doing what devout Jews would do. If you were around the temple at, um, you know, uh, nine, noon, and three, you would come for a time of public prayer. That's what the Jews would do, except now Peter and John have the Holy Spirit. They have the message of eternal life. And as we saw, the new believers in Christ, we saw back in chapter 2, verse 42, they continued steadfastly. In the Apostles' Doctrine, the breaking of bread, it says, and prayer, but it, literally it's in the prayers. While they were in Jerusalem, they kept going at the time of public prayer. That's when a lot of people would be there. What better time to have a gospel presentation opportunity? Now we're just told a man was there. I'm sure somebody somewhere has decided they know what this guy's name was. We don't know, and it doesn't matter, but it was a, it was a common scene. Those who depended upon begging would go to the best places to beg. We didn't have, they didn't have disability insurance and social security and things like that. People, some of them were reduced to, they don't eat if there aren't enough uh, contributions given. So the temple was the best place to be for begging. Uh, not only because the most people came by there, Every day in Jerusalem, but remember, the religion of the Jews, dominated by the Pharisees in jesus day, was given over to doing showy things to impress God by their visible acts of charity. that 's what Jesus confronted in the Sermon on the Mount. In, in Matthew chapter six, verses one through four, he said, "Beware of practicing your righteousness to be seen by men." They did it for a show. Well, if you're on the receiving end of people trying to work their way to heaven, the best place to be is where the most people want to be seen giving the most contributions. So, not to fault this guy, that was the best place to be. Now, he was at this gate called the Beautiful Gate. That was not one of the outside gates into the city of Jerusalem, but the Beautiful Gate connected the court of the Gentiles to the court of the women. Probably somewhere in the back of your Bible, if you have a study Bible, you can see a diagram of the temple. You can figure out where that, where that is. It was an extremely ornate gate. Here it was decorated extensively with bronze. So when they said, I don't have silver and gold to give you, it's kind of like in contrast to this gaudy place where we are. Now it said he was asking to receive alms. Alms are charitable donations. We would call it the benevolent fund, taking care of those emergency immediate needs. And you often see scenes like this um, much more so in other cultures, uh, sometimes in society in general, but especially at religious sites, the people who who subsist on the generosity of others would be where the most traffic is. Well that's the man, which leads to the miracle in verses four through eleven. Now, two things happen here. First, what stands out is what happened to this man, this miraculous cure of this guy who had never walked. It was a spectacular, undeniable miracle performed by Peter. And that's how the biblical gift of miracles worked. It was the God-given ability to effect instant and total cures of any kind of disease or deformity. So look at it starting in verse 4. But Peter, along with John, fixed his gaze on him and said, Look at us. Now you can understand if you were reduced to begging, you may not want to make a lot of eye contact, and they, but they wanted to engage with this guy. Okay, look, look at us. And he began to give them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I do not possess silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, walk. Oh, wow. Now, miracles were done in the New Testament by Jesus and the apostles, usually by a word, or a touch, or both. In this case, both. He said, in the name of Jesus the Nazarene, walk. He reached out his hand and helped the guy up, and he was instantly healed. Look at verses 7 and 8. And seizing him by the right hand, he raised him up, and immediately his feet and his ankles were strengthened. With a leap, he stood upright. Just saw animal show the other day, and the, the, the newborn moose, you know, trying to get up for the first time, and every, you know, it's got four legs going nine directions, trying to, this wasn't like a first step. He leapt up with a leap. He stood upright and began to walk, and he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. Wow. Now that leads to the second thing that happens. The focus is immediately off that guy and his condition. Uh, We have one more little thing said about him in the text that kind of implies that this brought him to faith, but the focus isn't on him. What happened to him was immediately used by God to draw attention and to set the stage for Peter to preach again. Look at verses 9 through 11. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. What all people? All the people in the temple. That was the thing that got everybody's attention. Verse 10, And they were taking note of him as being the one who used to sit at the beautiful gate of the temple in alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While he was clinging to Peter and John, can't blame him for that. He probably figured, what if those guys walk away? Am I going to go back on the ground again? While he was clinging to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them at the so-called portico of Solomon, full of amazement. They'd probably heard about Peter preaching before. If they weren't present, they'd probably heard about the sound like the mighty rushing wind and the cloven tongues of fire and the gifts of languages. They figured something was up. Well, God's purpose for this miracle was to arrange for the gospel to be preached to all the people who were present in the temple that afternoon. And it was another large crowd. Now, this is the first healing recorded in the book of Acts. It is an example of how such miracles took place. You notice what Peter and John did in order to heal this guy? They merely spoke to him, then raised him up it 's tempting to point out that no one among the people in this generation who now claim to have the gift of healing do that the sum total is zero that isn 't being done today now i 'd be happy if it did, but that 's not operating today and we dealt with miracles and healing several times in the past, and I can direct you to recordings where we dealt with it in detail if you want to pursue it. But uh, just understand, this is a profoundly obvious, spectacular miracle. Now, how did this man demonstrate faith before he was healed? That's another important point. He didn't. He did nothing to show faith before he was healed. Teaching that people... um, are not healed because they don't have enough faith is a perversion of what the Bible teaches and every example of healing that we have. Those healed are often not believers. And by the way, to tell somebody, well, the reason you weren't healed is that you don't have enough faith or you haven't made a sufficient seed offering yet, that is one of the most cruel, blasphemous, anti-Christian things anyone could ever. Ever say. Now, would you also notice how much time elapsed for this healing to take effect? <laughs> Instantly, instantaneous. The idea these days of, well, you, you can come forward and you can claim your healing, and then as you pray and as you study and maybe as you give more, your miraculous healing may set in over the next several days totally contrary to the Bible. Now, what was the result of this miracle? Well, would you notice Peter and John did not say, form a line over here to wait for your healing? No, the, the, the purpose is that God was praised and the interest was piqued for people to hear why it had been possible. And as with all the miracles of Jesus and the apostles, it was directly tied to the proclamation of God's grace through the gospel. Now I'll give you a hint based on some of those things we've just said. If you hear um, an advertisement, there's a certain sign on a certain road at a certain church that we go by many times a week that advertises their healing service. When you see that, Just keep driving. That's not a Christian gathering. Never is the purpose gathering for healing, gathering for miracles. When the Holy Spirit actually works, whether it is a miracle or if it's the providential use of other non-miraculous gifts that God gives, the attention, when the Holy Spirit works, is never on the Holy Spirit. The attention is always not on the miracle and not on the person healed. It's on the Savior. It's on the gospel. And that's the point here. The man never walked. The miracle totally healed immediately. Now, the message, Peter's message. God intended this miracle to gather a crowd, to draw attention. So let's examine this message and we're going we're gonna to plow through it all the way. But let's look for us for what applications we can make for how we talk about the Lord when we have an opportunity because our situation is quite different from that one. But let's read about this, this message that Peter preached. Chapter 3, we'll start at verse 12. But when Peter saw this, he replied to the people. See, he saw what? Well, he saw everybody in the whole temple running over to see what would happen. And this guy walking and leaping and praising God, and they'd walk past him who knows how many times and, and, and maybe drop something in the cup. And here's this guy leaping and praising God. And So they're all running together, and Peter says, Men of Israel, why are you amazed at this? Or why do you gaze at us? Well, come on, Peter. It's because of what the guy's doing when, after you healed him. But he says... As if by our own power or piety, we made him walk. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant, Jesus. It took him, what, two sentences? And the subject is now Jesus. That's the point of the miracle. Jesus, the one whom you delivered and disowned in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. But put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. And on the basis of faith in his name, it is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man whom you see and know and the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect health in the presence of you all. Now, if that's referring to the man receiving faith, then the man got saved that day. I'd sure like to think that he, that he did, and I think he began a, a gymnastics fellowship immediately for the people around. The miracle is spectacular. People are rightly amazed and, and curious And Peter immediately shifts the focus of attention from the guy to God. Not on himself, not on him and John, not on the healed man. He was quite specific. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus, the one whom you delivered and disowned in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. Wow. What credit did he take for the healing? none. It all belongs entirely to God. And as I said, they didn't tell people to line up for their turn to be healed. They immediately turned the attention attention of the Father and Son. If, If they had done 50 more healings that day, it would not have served any further purpose to accredit the message of Peter and John. Now, since you can't speak to that generation who killed Jesus what should you say to someone in place of what Peter said in there, uh, in, in verses fourteen and fifteen about "You killed Jesus," you you shouted out to Pilate? Well, the way to import the message from that generation to any generation to any culture is to point out that Christ died in your place, He rose again, and He calls you to Himself. It, it's that simple. Turn the attention to Jesus. Now, do you see also in this passage the responsibility of God, or the, the, the responsibility of man and the sovereignty of God are again both stated side by side, side by side. Look at verses 17 and 18. And now, brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance, just as your rulers did also. But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Again, Peter's saying what he said back in chapter 2. This plan was announced by God hundreds of years in advance. And sinners sent Jesus to the cross, but sinners are also responsible for You disowned the holy and righteous one. And today, people are responsible for their personal version of you have not put your faith in Jesus Christ. So, you knew this was coming. Look at verse 19 and following. Therefore, because God did this, because you disowned the holy and righteous one, God raised him up. Therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send Jesus the Christ appointed for you whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient times now that that phrase times of refreshing and the phrase, the period of restoration, they're two different ways of referring to the millennial kingdom. Just like Peter did in chapter 2, when he connected the arrival of the Holy Spirit to Joel's prophecy about the messianic kingdom, he says the same thing here in different words. This is the plan of God. Jesus came, He died, He was buried, He rose again, He ascended to the Father, and He's going to stay there until He brings the kingdom to earth. So, once you have someone's attention, even if you don't have a formerly lame guy walking and leaping and praising God, and you've explained that Christ died for your sins according to the Scriptures, what do you do next? Well, I suggest take your cue from Peter. Therefore, repent and return. Now, There's a lot of things that Peter didn't say here. He doesn't say, ask Jesus into your heart. When I visited India 40 plus years ago... Just a couple of weeks before I had been there, I was with a group of evangelical American pastors, and we were there to see what the believers there were doing. But just about two weeks before we were there, one of the most famous American charismatic um, evangelists had, had done a, a crusade in several cities in India. He would gather large crowds. And I'll tell you how to gather a large crowd In India, go anywhere. In any town, anywhere, there's people everywhere. But he went to stadiums, every place they could, gathered these large crowds, and he preached his message, and he said, Ask Jesus into your heart. He's God. Ask Him into your heart. And he claimed something like 250,000 conversions. Now none of the pastors that we talked to had ever seen any of those people in their churches. Well why? What's well, a Hindu culture? Hinduism has about 220 million gods. Some local, some regional, some territorial, the big one, and and if you and, and they live in fear that if something goes wrong in their lives and in in that culture they don't have it very good. Well, that's because you have, even if it's unknowing, you have offended one of those gods. So they'll have a shrine, you know, in their, in their backyard to try to placate the local gods that they know of. So if you tell somebody who already believes in 220 million gods, well, I know this God named Jesus, ask Him into your heart. Well, sure. If you already got 220 million, what's 220 million and one? Not that... He's the one to whom all of those supposed gods will answer. He doesn't say, you know, enter into a personal relationship with Jesus. My friends, Jesus is Lord. And if you don't know him now, he will get personal with you, whether you are personal with him now or not. Um, he didn't say that mantra that's so popular these days well, this isn't about religion. Well, well, yes, it is. It's just that it's not about human religion of trying to work your way to God. It's about the religion of God's provision of a Savior in, in Christ. He certainly didn't tell these people, you can have your best life now. Remember when that book came out, I, I made the rather obvious point. The only people for whom you can say you can have your best life now is if you're going to hell. Because all we have now is going to be nothing compared to being with the Lord He certainly doesn't say, look inside yourself, learn to love yourself so you can love other people. He doesn't say, Jesus loves you just the way you are. Um, He'll accept you as you come, but he certainly doesn't say anything like that. He doesn't say, he gets us. He said the most loving, kind, truthful thing he could. Your Savior came. You rejected Him. He died. He rose again. He ascended to the Father. He's coming back. Therefore, repent. Change your mind about Him. Repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away. That's the very same call that He gave in the previous sermon in the previous chapter when those 3,000 people believed. Is back in chapter 2, verse 38, and then verse 40. Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. My friends, we have the message that makes the difference between the lake of fire And the new heavens and the new earth as a person's eternal destiny. Don't be afraid. Don't be embarrassed. Don't be ashamed. Don't be shy to say, therefore, my friend, repent and return. A gospel presentation that is devoid of a call to to repent isn't a gospel presentation. It's tragic that American in American Christianity we've gotten so touchy feely that it's it's common to avoid things like sin and repentance and humbling oneself when we present the gospel, but that's what it's all about. It's a changed life. All by the grace of God, but it's a changed life. Change your direction. Repent. Come to the Savior. Look at verses 22 to 24. Moses said... Who is he preaching to? Jews in the temple. Pretty good to quote Moses. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. To him you shall give heed to everything he says to you. And it will be that every soul that does not heed that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. And likewise... All the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and his successors onward also announced these days. Now, now look carefully there. According to those verses, why is anyone ever condemned? Or as Peter said, utterly destroyed? Well, if you don't turn to Christ, that will be your eternal destiny. Now his quotation is from Deuteronomy 18 and that's where Moses said, the Lord's going to raise up a prophet like me, referring to himself, Moses. That's a prophecy of the Savior. It's a prophecy of Jesus Christ. A person is condemned if they fail to heed the word of God through his prophets, all of which point ultimately to Christ. We need to include in the gospel presentation the warning that to disobey this is to be, well, it's not a polite way to say it, utterly destroyed. That's not what you want. Now what's that referring to? Well, if you were to go ahead to Revelation chapter 20, I won't take you there now, but that's where the event of the, the so-called great white throne judgment is involved. And that's where all unbelievers are judged the basis of the judgment is the deeds that they have done. And it says the books were opened and the books contained everything every person there had ever done, thought, or said. That's what's in the books. And the judge at that judgment is perfectly fair. He is completely unbiased. He takes every shred of evidence into account and He yields a righteous judgment. Now everyone who is there falls short of the standard for salvation which is perfection. And so they're all sentenced to the lake of fire. They are the ones who are not in Christ. And if you read before that, it talks about those who are blessed to be part of the first resurrection. That's the resurrection of believers, the resurrection of those who are judged on the basis of Jesus' perfection, not their imperfection. What an astonishing outpouring of grace we have in Jesus Christ. You know it in capsule form in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. Two destinies. Perish, eternal torment in the lake of fire, or eternal life. By putting your faith in Jesus Christ, you are spared from the wrath of God that you deserve. And rather than being judged on the basis of everything you've ever done or said or thought... You will be judged as He looks at you, clothed in the righteousness of Christ, which has been imputed to you. Another way to describe that is in Romans chapter 5, verses 8 through 10. But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, matter of fact, way before we were born, Christ died for us much more than Having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. What a great message. And Peter isn't finished. He ends on the sweetest of high notes last two verses, 25 and 26. It is you who are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. For you first, God raised up His servant and sent Him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. How spectacular is that? We read this morning in Romans chapter 9, Paul says, I'm I'm grieved for my people who don't know their Savior. And Peter says to his Jewish friends, for you first. All the Jews who heard him that day. Now it's true, it was their spiritual leaders who earned the title, this perverse generation, as when Peter said, be saved from this perverse generation. But Peter takes them all the way back to the foundation of all the promises of the Savior. The, the covenant of all the covenants is the Abrahamic covenant. And as it's described in Genesis twenty two eighteen, 18, that's where it says to Abraham, And in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So this is a promise that one of Abraham's descendants will be a Savior for all the families of the earth. But it started with the people that Jesus came to. He rightly says to the Jews to whom he preached, this is for you first. The gospel is for the Jew first, but also to all the families of the earth. That's where we come into this sermon. All the families of the earth, even six or 7,000 miles and 2,000 years later, where it's really hard to even find one single Jew people are being saved by this very same message. You might also know Romans 1:16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And don't get bummed out here if you're sitting there saying, "Well, I'm not a Jew, I'm not a Greek." I guess I can't get saved. No, no. Greek means not Jew. It's a synonym for Gentile in that context. All this is fulfilled in Christ, starting with that promise to Abraham. Now, I know we've powered through an entire chapter, but I think in this case, it's helpful to consume it in one gulp. The message is the same that it was in chapter 2. But I want to urge us to think about how to apply it in our setting. We're not in Jerusalem. We're not in the temple. Our audience is not Jews. We cannot take the people we're talking to on a little 10-minute walk to show them the empty tomb of Jesus. But it's the same message. So... What can we extract by way of principle from Acts chapter 3 that we can use when we talk to someone about Christ? Let me make a couple of suggestions to you. Number one, any gospel presentation has to be theocentric, not anthropocentric. And I decided to use a couple of 25-cent words in case you were dozing off. Um, Maybe you'll remember it. A gospel presentation is God-centered, not man-centered. I had a friend um, when I was in seminary, he actually wrote a gospel tract. He, 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 he wanted to deal with what he called the peanuts, popcorn presentation of the gospel. You could go to the, you'd go to the baseball game and there'd be a guy walking through. He'd got all kinds of stuff, you know, hanging from his body and strapped to his, his, him. And, and he'd say, Well, what do you want? Peanuts, popcorn, soda, souvenirs, what would you like? And he said, we present the gospel the same way. What do you want? Peace, happiness, affluence, comfort. No, no, no. My friend, God created you in his image. And through your sin, you're alienated from him. I'm not here to give you peanuts and popcorn. I'm here to give you a a savior. The essence of the gospel is not about making you feel better. It's about restoring you to the God from whom you are alienated and to whom you are accountable. And then once you're reconciled to God, oh, trust me, the personal blessings are unending. But you have to take care of that reconciliation to God first by receiving the free gift that He gives to you. Now understand, too... When we say that that's the gospel presentation, you're probably on the other end of it. You've heard the presentation. You have repented. You have believed. Your sins have been taken away. And that means that you can have the unending comfort of knowing that salvation is all yours, done deal, all of God. We contribute nothing. We receive it as a free gift. It's the God centered salvation because He's the one who sent the Savior. Notice also that a gospel presentation must include explaining what the Word of God says, the facts. Christ died in your place, He rose again. And it also has to include man's responsibility to answer the invitation and to repent. Now, what provokes an opportunity to share the gospel could be almost anything. Ray Comfort is famous for talking to somebody and says, Do you consider yourself to be a good person? And the standard answer is, well, yeah. You know, I haven't murdered anybody all day long and, and uh, you know, I'm better than some people. And then he takes them to the Ten Commandments and, well, you ever done this? Well, yeah. You ever done that? You know. Okay, well, now we've established that you are um, a liar, an adulterer, an idolater. Do you consider yourself a good person? What would a righteous God say to somebody who's done the things that you've done? Would you deserve heaven or hell? He's very good at doing that and I, I would commend him to you. It isn't about the opportunities. We, we probably can't go find a person that's never walked, and have him jumping and leaping and praising God next to us. That would draw attention. I I, I get that. I remember the first person that I ever introduced to Christ. It was, uh, it, it was um, a person I met when I was in college. She was a late teenager, and uh, she shared with me that she had some real problems, and she did have some real problems. For one thing, she was the youngest of five kids. The other four were boys, and they were older than her. And her father was in the Marine Corps. I mean, scary life, right? But she had other problems too. And she said, You know, can you help me? And I said, No. (laughs) I didn't have any answers to any of those things. I'd only been a Christian a few months. But I said, But I think I know somebody that can. And I told her the gospel. And I said, Are you willing to repent and give your life to Christ? And she said, yes, wow, God used me. I I knew barely anything. Well, the point is the circumstances might expose the need that creates the opportunity that you explain who the Savior is. You saw the passion that Peter demonstrated for his countrymen there. Ask God to give you a similar heart of compassion for people who who need the Lord. And direct the attention to God and away from yourself. If you're willing to focus the attention on God, not yourself, you can be used mightily to guide people to call upon Him in repentance and in faith. And you know what? You might be concerned that maybe somebody would... Uh, turn their back on you or reject you or not like you could happen. But I'd rather they hear about heaven not liking me than go to hell and never heard about heaven because I didn't speak. Now, um, a, a fellow pastor put me onto this. I'll, I'll close with this. It's from an uh, English Puritan pastor named Thomas Manton. He wrote a book, By Faith. It's a series of sermons on Hebrews 11, the faith chapter, by faith. All these people did these different things. Here is what Manton wrote. I'll pass it on to you. He says, The whole business of Christianity contradicts sense. We give up the visible for invisible rewards. Sense "...only judges the outside of God's dispensations, but faith looks within the veil. There are secret and invisible things that God makes known to waiting souls. When there is no apparent comfort, there is not a drop of oil in the cruise," that means the jar, "...nor a dust of meal in the barrel, hope can hang upon a small thread, wait, trust." and look for favor from God. And that was based upon we walk by faith, not by sight. I know you've probably heard the gospel, believed, you're here. Be encouraged. It's a life-changing, eternal destiny-changing message. Let's pray that God will give us opportunity to share it and If, my friend, perchance you've never submitted your life to Jesus Christ, today's the perfect day to do that. Let's pray together, shall we? Our Father, thank you for your wonderful grace to us. We will never know until we meet him in your presence, the name of that man. But thank you for the miracle that drew the crowd on that day that stimulated this sermon that we have heard from the lips of Peter. And Father, it would be easy for us to say that, oh, if only we had that gift like Peter and John, we could, we could leave church here and go down the street to St. Alphonsus Hospital and split up and go floor by floor and room by room and empty the place and tell people about the Savior. Oh, I admit, Father, that would be wonderful. We don't need to do that because you have given us the gospel of your grace. You've given us your spirit, the one who convicts the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. So send us from where we are now to where we will go in this week. And open hearts to people around us. Open our mouths to speak truth in love and draw souls to yourself, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.